Well, good morning. It is a pleasure, a privilege, a joy, an honor to be here today for this special service of commissioning for the staff. Uh, in the passage that was read earlier, it, it, it's so much. There's so much in that passage you can spend time on today that we just can't because of time uh, constraints. This passage, I said in the first service, could be a feast. It could be a banquet. We could spend so much time. We could spend multiple Sundays on this passage. But instead, it's going to be an appetizer today, just to whet your appetite. So I hope you'll dig into it deeper later today, later this week, thinking about this. In the passage that Kevin read for us earlier in the service, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, and, and I would ask that you follow along as I share with you today, that you would keep me accountable and make sure that what I'm speaking to you is the truth of God's Word. But in the passage that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31, in this passage, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth to get them back to Jesus Christ as their center. Because if you read to the, the verses that come before it, we see that they've been distracted. We see that they've lost their focus. We see that there's division. Later in the book, in the letter, we see that there's sin in their midst. But he's getting them back to Jesus Christ as their center because they've lost focus. And we see this today too in our churches, in our homes, in our families, at times in my own life. We forget Christ crucified. We forget Christ glorified. We forget about Jesus Christ on the cross. And we get distracted and we lose focus. And this deeply affects how we relate to one another. And our passage today recenters us upon the cross. Before we go further, I invite you to bow with me in prayer. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word is food for us. We do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. May your spirit take the words from this passage today and apply them to our hearts, our minds, and may we apply the truths and the teachings in our actions. As we read this passage, may this passage read us, and may we be transformed to be more and more like Jesus, more and more how you want us to be. We ask this in his name. Amen. Today, as we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to see, first of all, folly and weakness. Secondly, wisdom and power. Thirdly, what it means for us as we look upon the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul begins by saying in this passage that the message of the cross is folly, foolishness in the world's eyes. But this word for folly that Paul uses is the same word that we get our English word for moron from. It's been defined as not only stupidity, but ignorance of and willful rebellion against God and His will. Our world, this world that we live in, honors and pursues power and control and so-called wisdom, and the message of the cross is none of that. And in fact, the cross is still foolishness to many people in our world today. Some accuse the cross of glorifying violence and fostering human suffering. Sometimes the cross is criticized in our world today because it's seen to portray a vindictive God. The cross has even been labeled by some as divine child abuse. 
These are just a few of the reasons why the cross is considered folly or even worse by the philosophers and scholars and brilliant debaters of our day. Well, Paul and the Corinthian church faced two main groups who had different reasons for considering the cross to be foolish. They show up in verse 22. The Jewish group thought the cross was foolish because they were looking for signs from heaven to authenticate the message about Jesus. They wanted a demonstration of power. They couldn't fathom God's Messiah being crucified in weakness. The idea offended them. Verse 23, God's anointed one couldn't be crucified, they thought, because those who are crucified are under God's curse. Paul refers to that in Galatians 3.13. And so the cross for the Jewish group was a stumbling block to them. It tripped them up. The Greek group thought the cross was foolish because they were looking for human wisdom. They were seeking to know God through their own reasoning about divinity and about how the universe works. They could never connect divinity with the cross. The idea was utter nonsense to them. A piece of ancient graffiti has been discovered in Rome that illustrates this Greek perspective. It's a poorly drawn picture of a man hanging on a cross, except for a head, he's been given a donkey's head. And then there's a man at the foot of the cross, worshiping. And the caption, the words attached to the picture say, Alexamenos, that's the guy at the foot of the cross, Alexamenos worships his God. The idea of Jesus, Son of God, dying on the cross was weakness, was folly, was moronic. It was scandalous to say that He's the Messiah or that He's God because in the Roman world, the cross was all about suffering. The cross was about weakness and shame. And these days, we just don't really get how shameful it really was. For us, the cross is art, it's a decoration, it's a popular tattoo. But the cross has been called the cruelest method of execution ever practiced in the world. Victims could suffer for days before they finally died. And crucified people died publicly exposed in public places. They were naked and helpless. And while hanging on the cross in this way, Jesus was mocked and scorned because both, for both the Jewish group, the Greek groups, the conclusion was that Jesus can't be the Messiah, Jesus can't be God, because He died on the cross. Our world honors and pursues power and control and so-called wisdom. The world honors and social media rewards those people who are influencers, those who are successful, those who are elite. Giving up power and giving up control are pure folly in our world's eyes, and so is choosing weakness. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. We've seen weakness and folly, and that's how, let's now turn our attention to wisdom and power. In verse 18, which I just read, we discover the cross is God's power for salvation. In contrast to the way that the Roman world thought about power, Paul redefines power for Christians. 
In his book, Cruciformity, Michael Gorman explains Paul's new definition. He writes, true power is not the ability to influence or control people against their will with the possibility or threat of enforcing one's will should others not comply. No, true power is cruciform, exercised only to serve the needs and the good of others. God's power is revealed through the weakness of Christ's suffering and humiliation and death. God's power is most clearly seen in and known in Jesus Christ on the cross. In verse 24, we discover that Christ is the wisdom of God. Verse 30, Paul writes that Christ is wisdom itself. Jesus himself, what he taught, how he lived, his death on the cross, that's wisdom. That's God's wisdom. Also in verse 24, we discover that the crucified Christ is the power of God. Not power despite weakness, but power that is manifested through weakness. Don't miss that. Not power despite weakness, but power manifested through weakness. That's how God works on the cross. That's how God worked through His apostles. Paul's ministry was one of his own personal weakness that was used in a mighty way by God among the churches. In fact, that's the lesson that Paul shares for us in 2 Corinthians 12. He discovered that Christ's power was made perfect in his own weakness. And that's how God still works in the church. Even today, power manifested through weakness. On this Commissioning Sunday, we're looking at this passage in 1 Corinthians 1 as what I would present to you as a philosophy of ministry. This is how to do ministry within the church of Jesus Christ for pastors, for ministry leaders, for elders and leaders, and for everyone else in the church too. We see in this passage the topsy-turvy work of God. At the cross, God is turning the world upside down. It's revolutionary, it's subversive to the world's way of thinking about power and about wisdom. Our world clamors for just climbing the ladder, trying to get a little bit higher. Our world craves for upward mobility. That's the American dream and the Canadian version that we've adopted and crafted. We do what we can, we do everything we can to try to get some more power some more power that will give us just even a little bit more control over life. But in Christ on the cross, we see self-humiliation. He embraces weakness. He embraces shame. And we see downward mobility as God the Son submits to death, even death on a cross. We see Him surrender His rights. We see the sacrificial giving of Himself for others out of love for them, out of obedience to the Father, and for the joy set before Him. Jesus Christ on the cross is the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ on the cross is the power of God. Verse 25, this foolish plan of God is wiser than the, than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger 
than the greatest of human strength. In verses 26 through 31 of our passage, we discover what God's wisdom and power in the crucified Christ, we discover what it now means for us. What are we supposed to do about it? Well, first of all, we see what we were before Christ. Verse 26, Paul says, few of you were wise in the world's eyes. Few of you were powerful. Few of you were wealthy. Verse 27, you were foolish and powerless, despised by the world, counted as nothing at all. We don't like to hear this kind of thing. These are tough words to hear. Powerless, foolish, despised. Not just considered that way by the rest of the world. No, we really were that way. But there's incredibly good news about being that way. God is attracted to weakness. He's attracted to the suffering and to the vulnerable and to the humble. We see this throughout Scripture. God chooses, over and over again, God chooses those people who are low, those who are despised. God chooses those who are small and insignificant. God chooses them all the time. Think of Jacob. Think of Ruth. Think of the nation of Israel. Think of David. Think of Mary, and the list goes on. God's plans, God's purposes always subvert the world standards. Well, next we see what we are now, our identity in Christ. Very quickly again, too quickly. And again, I appreciate the songs chosen earlier that speak, that sing of our identity, who we are now in Christ. Well, Paul writes to the church, verse 26, now in Christ we are called by God. Verse 27, we are chosen by Him to belong to Him. Verse 30, we're now united with Christ. Pure and holy, we have been set free from the guilt and slavery to sin. Jesus is our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This final part of this sermon is addressing what God's wisdom and power shown on the cross, what God's wisdom and power mean for us now. We've seen what we were before Christ. We see what we are now in Christ. But now let's spend some time considering what we are supposed to do about it. And again, it's not just for the pastors or staff being commissioned. It's for all of us, each and every one of us. But you know, people brag and boast about many different kinds of things. People boast and brag about wealth or possessions, about accomplishments and experiences and status and so on. The word for boast that Paul uses in our passage refers to whatever it is that you find your glory in, where you find your worth, where you find your identity, your purpose. Sometimes that defining moment that gives shape and meaning to your life. I'm going to do something that I have always thought of to be very dangerous for a pastor to do. I'm going to tell you a movie that our family likes. Don't judge. (laughs) The movie is Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. That's a different kind of judging you just did right there. There's a character in Napoleon Dynamite. His name is Uncle Rico. 
And 20 or 25 years after the fact, he is still obsessed with the state championship football game from high school. He was the backup quarterback, but he never got into the game. He stayed on the bench. But he still throws footballs. In fact, he records it on camera with the vein, with the obsessive hope of still going pro. Someone's going to notice him. He is boasting. He is glorying in that game, in a missed opportunity. It has come to define him. You know, we're tempted to find our identity in all sorts of things other than in Jesus Christ. We struggle with this as believers too. We sometimes look to the things that we do for identity or the things that we've done or sometimes to the things that have been done to us. We look for identity in our stuff, in our relationships that we have, in our ethnicity, in our education, in our politics, in our sexuality. The Corinthians were doing just that. If you look at the verses before the ones that we read, they're name-dropping. They're arguing and boasting about different early church celebrities that they were following. They were boasting of gifts, of status, of wisdom. Then Paul corrects them. Paul corrects us. In light of what we were, in light of who we are now, our proper response is to boast only in Jesus Christ and in His cross. Verse 31, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. And so, boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ means boasting in what He has done. And it also means boasting in how He did it, in weakness, in humiliation. And boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ also means boasting in our own death. To paraphrase Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a person, He calls them to come and die. We embrace the meaning of the cross, and we also embrace the way of the cross. Because when we repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ, we're choosing to die to self in order to live. We're choosing to lose our life in order to find the true life that is only found in Jesus Christ. We die to ourselves so that we may now give ourselves for others, just as Jesus has given Himself for us. And again, this is for pastors, and this is for leaders, and this is for everyone in the church. Jesus says in Matthew 16, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Jesus invites you to follow Him to the cross. And again, warning, accepting Jesus' invitation to follow Him is going to kill you. It will kill your sinful nature. It will kill the me-centered life, the self-centered life, because it means we no longer live to pursue our own desires or pursue our own self-fulfillment. It means we no longer live to follow and fulfill our own plans with our time and energy and money and resources and in our relationships. It means dying to self. It means embracing weakness. 
It's about moving towards the mess and the brokenness in life and in this world with a servant heart. It's about choosing to put yourself under others. It's about choosing humility and serving and even sacrifice for the sake of others, for your spouse, your parents, for your child, your sibling, for your friend, your classmate, your coworker, your neighbor, even for the person who might be an enemy. And at times, it's going to feel like it's going to kill you to live this way. But I think that's just a little bit of what it means to die to yourself. In their book entitled The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, the authors contrast the way of the world and Satan, who's the dragon, with the way of Jesus, who's the lamb. The way of the dragon is the way of pursuing power and pursuing control and seizing power and control, whatever method necessary, and pushing forward self and pushing forward self-interest, using the ways and the methods of the world and even sometimes incorporating them within the church. But the way of the lamb is the way of the cross, the life, they say, in which power is found in dependence upon God in light of our weakness. Following in the, may, in the way of Jesus means not pursuing power and control or trying to regain lost power and control. Following in the way of Jesus means surrendering power and control for the purpose of serving and blessing others. The life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is a life of conforming to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the cross is how we're saved, and the cross is also how we're called to live out our salvation every day. Lived out in the nitty-gritty of life, everyday life, normal life, at home, at work, at school. Not just talked about, but put into action. Because it's the wise way to live. It's the powerful way to live. It's the loving way to live, following in the footsteps of Jesus. Following Jesus Christ is always lived out in relationship with other people. None of us is solo. None of us is a lone wolf. Both the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 and the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 call us to have the same attitude and actions as Jesus in how we relate to each other. Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And then Peter reminds us that God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in His steps. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church that's mired in dispute and division and sin. And his call to this church is to boast in the crucified Christ. He refocuses them on the cross. We simply cannot be proud. We can't be divided. We can't be self-serving or selfish and be boasting in the cross of Christ at the same time. And it's not just the Corinthian church that needs this reminder. We need it too. I need it too. 
in times of distraction, times of pride, times of struggle, times of uncertainty. I need my eyes on Jesus Christ crucified. I need to get my eyes set on the cross. As I close today, I invite you to listen to the words of this old hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow, mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The composer of this hymn is Isaac Watts, and this hymn is his response to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross of Jesus always demands a response. You can never stay neutral to the cross of Jesus. Maybe you've never turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. Maybe you did years ago or maybe even days ago. you must respond to the cross. No response is still a response. How do you respond today? May our response follow the example of Isaac Watts. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Thanks so much for joining us today. We trust you have been encouraged and challenged in your faith journey. If you're desiring prayer, want more information on our church, want to partner with us or be involved in any way, please go to our website at mountoliveefc.com. We'll see you next time.